Welcome to episode number 47 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we're talking about the Canadian regulatory framework for combustible dust safety. To do that, we have on a fantastic guest, Jeff Mycroft from Fight Canada, and he's the Ontario Regional Sales Manager for Fight Canada. He has over 20 years' experience in explosion and overpressure protection, extremely knowledgeable in explosion safety, extremely knowledgeable in combustible dust safety. Um, I would say one of the, the leading and most knowledgeable people in Canada on the topic. So I'm really excited to have him on the show to go through this, the Canadian regulatory framework with us. And Jeff, I just want to give you a big welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So this episode specifically is kind of part of a, a longer term series we've been doing this year. Um, the, the big goal for this year is understanding combustible dust as a global challenge and developing global solutions. And we did a bunch of episodes, basically all around the world. So number 10, we talked with Alan Tilsley of the UK. Number 15, we talked about the IECEX system. Uh, number 20, we talked about ATEX with our Peverest. Number 24, we talked about the regulations in China. 25, we talked about the regulatory framework in Germany. 38, we talked about the regulatory framework in New Zealand. And 45, we just recently talked with Brian Edwards, so the regulatory framework in the United States. So if you're paying attention, that was a lot of numbers. You can get those all at dustsafetyscience.com slash the number. But we haven't done my home country, Canada. So I thought it was important to get Jeff on to finally close the loop on that and uh, and kind of explain through what things, how things operate in Canada, what some of the successes are that we're having, and maybe even what some of the challenges are. So Jeff, kind of by way of just getting started in background, can you just go through what your what your background is in industries handling combustible dust throughout Canada and then what your current role is with Bike Canada? Uh, that's a good question. Thanks. Um, you had a more than generous uh, intro for me, so I won't go back over that. I've been with Fike over 20 years, but I've been into, it seems like, uh, countless facilities handling combustible dust, everything from food manufacturing, grains, ink toners, metal dusts. Uh, if it makes it a dust. I've been in that facility probably across Canada sometime over the last quite a few years. So I'm very, very familiar with that. And as you go into these facilities, you have to be very, very aware of the local codes and standards that are impacting their compliance. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that. At one point we were talking actually about the number of facilities that you thought you had been into. And I can't remember the exact number. We were, we were up in the high hundreds, I believe. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's, that would be accurate. I, I, I wish I started recording, uh, you know, as as it went along, but it's just quickly gone over the years where it just added up, and I couldn't begin to go and go through the the numbers. But yeah, high hundreds. Excellent. So then, I guess you're in a great position to go through this topic, getting regulatory framework, just by way of getting started. And um, a lot of times, framework might even be too strong of a word sometimes for for what's going on across a, a diverse country. But what is the the regulatory framework within Canada? How is that kind of set up? in terms of combustible dust safety? It really varies. As you said, it's a really big country, right? And we have uh, such diverse industries across that country. So uh, there is a national fire code. And most provincial fire codes copy a great deal of that national fire code. However, each province has customized it to some sort, some extent and some greatly. Like Quebec is, varies greatly from the national fire code uh, while still keeping some of it. Whereas like, if you look at British Columbia and Ontario and various others, uh, it's almost word for word for a, not even see 90% of it, 95 in, in parts, but they've customized it to the industries they are and they've, they've modified it and 
So when it comes to explosion protection in like again, British Columbia and Ontario, it's almost word for word what it says in one to the other. On top of that, there's uh, the Ministry of Labor across Canada, and they're called different things in different areas. But in Ontario, Ministry of Labor, where in BC, it's WorkSafe BC. There's also building inspectors uh, that have certain specific, at the very early stages of uh, design, the good ones are starting to catch uh, combustible dust hazards and uh, making sure that the protection's in before they'll sign off on the on the uh, go-ahead. Uh, we have in the Ministry of Labor, there's also, at least in Ontario, uh, before you start, actually, there's eight triggers you can you can that would cause this. If you're moving a piece of equipment, if you're greatly modifying it, if you're adding a piece of equipment, before you start that piece of equipment up, you have to have an engineer uh, licensed in Ontario uh, sign off on that piece of equipment that it is safe before it starts up. So there's various ways of uh, of the compliance being uh, generated, uh, for lack of better words. Um, and that way, when people, the way I guess it should be is the, that's the way you get to, to compliance, but it's not being followed in some places and there's great holes throughout. Yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely get into the challenges and, and some of the successes as well. So I'll highlight a couple of those. So there's the National Fire Code, which is adopted provincially either in whole with some minor modifications, depending on the, the industries that are there, um, or it may be uh, greatly changed. And we see this in the United States as well, where um, individual states may adopt OSHA, they may create, they may have their own OSHA, um, and then they may adopt the, the documentation. So it's it's similar to that boat. We also have the Ministry of Labor throughout the different provinces, or the Ministry of Labor, again, they're called different things in different provinces, building inspectors signing off on getting the building permits to to uh, finalize new builds. And then you also mentioned the engineer. Is there a name for the licensed engineers signing off on new technology? Yeah, pre-start and safety health review, or PSHR. Some people shorten it to PSR, but it's all the same thing. So, I mean, that sounds complicated, <laughs> just uh, just off the start, and it probably is kind of complicated. How is this? How is it enforced? Or enforced might not be the right word, but how are industry made aware? What kind of pressures are there on compliance and following these sort of rules? Like, how what's that all look like in Canada? Again, it varies where you from where you come from, I guess. Um, and really, stickly because there's so many safety issues out there, uh, the regulatory bodies, the amount of enforcement typically is directly related to if an uh, an event or a series event has been seen in that area. So, uh, the enforcement and how uh, the regulatory bodies are are keeping up with this is like the fire prevention officers uh, will come out to site and sometimes we'll catch it. The Ministry of Labor um, inspectors, uh, building inspectors to a small, small extent, and engineers doing uh, some sort of review will quite often pick it up as well. There's giant holes in that though, as I said, but that's typically how it's how it's enforced. But again, the fire inspectors are more in, uh, looking at uh, means of egress from a building and uh, sprinklers and the things that they've seen reg- on a regular basis causing loss of lives or injuries because they don't see explosions every day. It's a low frequency, high severity event. And as such, you just, you're not seeing the enforcement uh, throughout the uh, regulatory bodies. And don't get me wrong, we, we have a, there's a lot of really good inspectors out there, but all of them, there's, a, there's turnover the education might not be getting there in the first place, and they are focusing on the things they see every day. Yeah, there's a couple of things there, right? So they need to, it's it's who is it that's there? And they they bring in their own set of 
um, education, their own set of what their priorities are, their own set of um, what's most relevant in their mind. Um, and you mentioned some of those groups like fire prevention officers, it's going to be slightly different than a building inspector. It's going to be slightly different than an explosion protection specialist brought in to design an explosion system. But there's providing that education. They may or may not have it there. Um, there's top of mind what the different, it's like you said, if something's happens recently and we've had this in in uh, WorkSafe BC or in BC where we had a lot of sawmill explosions in 2012, 2013 kind of time frame, um, which brought up a lot of awareness there. So uh, yeah, it's a very diverse group of people. Do you see a big difference? I know that we have some very some geographical areas that have a lot lower population than others. Do you see a big difference geographically throughout Canada in the knowledge and awareness? Yes, and I I don't know enough about how different offices are trained. I know there's no central, there's no national central fire uh, training center. Um, each province does it own, and I think it might even be uh, it changes per the area you're in. And I've been into like larger cities where the knowledge is great. And then you go a hundred kilometers away and into a uh, fairly rural community and you go into this facility and like, Oh, Bob, the inspector, Bob, they know him by name. Cause he's been out there, was out here yesterday. I don't know what you're talking about. There's, there's no hazard here. And you know, it's, there's no place to say if the fire marshal doesn't recognize a hazard, it's not there. It's, it's that their level of education. And I'm not saying he wasn't great in a million areas. He just wasn't aware of this particular code. What are, what are some of the things that you're seeing that are working in this space of combustible dust safety out there? What are some successes you're seeing from Canada? Is there anything we can draw and learn from those? Yeah, actually, uh, you mentioned it already. One of the really good ones is WorkSafe BC. Unfortunately, they, they did. They had two incidences, Babine Forest Products and Lakeland Mills. They had one explosion, two people died, and many people were injured. And then less than six months later, a second explosion, same, two people died and uh, more people were injured. And as a result of that, people... I know there was an outcry and why wasn't changes made before that second plant. And well, it's one of those ones where when something happens and it hasn't happened very often in the past, it's like a one-off. You're like, not me, but people in the industry are like, it's fluke, right? They used to cut down wet trees, saw up wet trees, and then and there was a low risk. However, with a pine beetle going through, they're cutting up dry trees. Now the fine, dry sawdust, the sawdust is there, higher risk. And they had two incidences within six months and work cbc did a really really good job they uh, got themselves educated on all the hazards and what they needed to do to get there and they started immediately having stop work orders on uh, some of these facilities out there and they made them clean it up and as time goes on and their education gets better and better they're starting to say hey this needs to be fixed this needs to be fixed so it's a incremental process incremental process but they're doing a great job in that uh, whereas other places don't want to jump on my home province here, but Ontario, uh, we're drastically behind. There's a lot of, again, good inspectors and some are catching this, but as a whole, we're missing a lot. We go into tons and tons and tons of facilities and they're largely unprotected and they've had both those inspectors in there regularly. And it's, uh, it's not their job to catch every mistake, but I fear there's going to have to be another uh, imperial sugar size explosion or by being too a bean forest like Glen Mills explosions for it to happen. Yeah, or a West Drake coal mine explosion in Nova Scotia in, in 92. Um, that's only an hour and a half from here. Uh, every miner was was fatally injured in that explosion. And the people of that small community definitely haven't forgot it. But, you know, as you move farther and farther out, these things kind of get lost in the history books. It's a great point. Um, and uh, actually, Nova Scotia, 
uh, East is actually a, a good example as well. They've gone through and uh, uh, most of their high schools now have uh, fully compliant or close to at least much more safer dust collection systems with a combustible related to a combustible dust hazard than they used to uh, as a result of some of that education and, and knowledge and possibly that exposure too. So they've done that. Whereas in Ontario, I, I walk through, you know, I into various places and you walk by almost any high school i don't haven't seen one that has the proper explosion protection on a on a dust collector and the dust collector is the highest the mo- highest risk piece of equipment the most likely place for an explosion to happen and and typically in uh those dust collectors in high schools they're not maintained very well and you get kids fooling around you know so it's probably a higher risk piece of equipment so we're missing there's holes in this program the legislation is there. The knowledge is getting better, but we're just we're just not quite there. So I guess I want to note: every time I've met, talked to any of these guys, interacted with these jurisdictional authorities, without exception, they've all been really conscientious people. They want to make a difference. They want to make it safe. But when I start educating them on this hazard, they go out in there and they do. They enforce it, but they just don't have you know again turnover, and they can't be aware of every single hazard and, and issue out there. But the problem with explosions when they do happen, they're quite often really, really severe. Yeah, and it's I want to touch on a couple of things. So, one, it's not a fault on them necessarily. It, well, it's not a fault on them. So, if you if you see a tripping hazard in your house, and I use this this example a lot because I have a, a eleven month old now, almost twelve months. But if a toy is sitting on top of the stairs and you don't pick it up the first time you see it, then you find yourself the second time you don't pick it up third time. By the fourth time, you don't even see that anymore. It could be there two weeks. Because nothing bad has happened, and then somebody trips down the stairs. So, if you see a hazard, you become normalized to it each time you observe it, and it doesn't happen. Um, so, if you're a, a local jurisdiction that's aware of a combustible hazard, and then you go one year, two years, five years, ten years, you're at the end of your your forty year career. You you can't expect that individual to have a heightened sense of of that risk. Um, they're gonna be pretty numb to it. So then it's it's not their fault. It's the fault of the educators. And the, I mean, we, we take it as a, a personal thing that we need to do with the safety science to get that education out there, keep it forefront of mind, also illustrate that it's not not happening. It's just not happening and escalating or it's just not happening in your geographic region of the world. That doesn't mean there wasn't grain elevator explosions while there were grain explosions in North America last year that, that killed folks, but there are also several around the world. So we can't, well, that's kind of one thing. You can't really fault them it's how do we educate how we go across those psychological barriers and start to get it more front of mind and then a couple of things you you mentioned nova scotia dust collector program we cover that in episode four of the podcast really interesting we probably don't have time to go real deep into it here but um basically an engineer saw an unproperly protected uh, dust collector vented towards unsafe location um, and you can imagine what some kind of unsafe locations might be in a in a school and basically put a padlock on it. So this doesn't look safe. I don't know. I'm not a, a fire protection engineer, but, and that ended up with the, the province auditing every dust collector in every public building and finding, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm going to say very, very high percentages, like 80, 90% improperly protected. Um, it makes me nervous because we see five to 10 dust collector fires at high schools every year in the incident reporting. Um, a lot of those are in the United States. Then question is, do they do they all need a DHA? Well, maybe, but there's 20,000 of them. Do we have enough qualified individuals? And we, I've ranted on this about the podcast before, but can we, how, how do, what do we do there? And we don't have a solution yet. Um, and eventually one of those improperly protected high school dust collectors is going to, is going to have an explosion and 
there was several in Nova Scotia where they found dust all through the false ceilings from incorrectly installed air return systems. Uh, and if it leads to a, a domino effect in the catastrophic loss, it's going to be very terrible. So yeah, Nova Scotia Dust Collector Program, uh, episode four, episode 30 of the podcast, I talked about five open challenges. And one is these small facilities. How do you deal with them in terms of education and awareness? There's just so many, 20,000 schools, there's 2 million farms in the United States. You know, uh, there's there's countless number of wood shops. So yeah, there's some big some big difficulties there, and we're seeing those in Canada as well. I did want to go back and touch on part of the WorkSafe BC story. I think that is important to bring up, and I want to see what your thought on this was. So you mentioned that they had a couple incidents. They really educate themselves, and they give themselves the the power to go in and and consciously start really cracking down on on what they're seeing. Um, but another thing that I think is really successful there is they did a lot of partnerships, and they weren't easy partnerships at first, but they started to partner with industry organizations and really started working back and forth. We're seeing now five, seven years later, some really great things coming out of those partnerships. So something that you've seen, you know, as a model that works for, for a regulator partnering with industry associations? Absolutely. Uh, that's a perfect example. Uh, Wood Pellet Association of Canada is, is the one that pops into my head right, right off the bat. After those explosions, WorkSafe BC, um, started cracking down, and there was a, a industry pushback. They're like, "We've been doing this for blank money years. Uh, why are you jumping on us?" And you don't get me wrong; they want safe industry for their their employees and themselves, but they felt that the level of crackdown was not relative to it. But after that initial pushback, they've actually banded together the Woodpell Association. Uh, they formed a safety committee, and all these competitors formed a committee together and they agreed to not compete on safety and share their stories and they partnered with WorkSafe BC. They brought, you know, what some would say fox in the hen house and but that's not what this is. That WorkSafe and everybody wants the same thing. They want their employees safe. They want their facilities safe. So they partnered together and uh, now these like when WorkSafe BC, uh, BC comes in, the, uh, the company knows the expectations. They know where they need to be, and they're already there. That that, that safety committee formed by all those uh, started off with pellet industries, but now it's uh, broadened into more wood products. And they work together. They've they've formed their own uh, internal audits and uh, training programs and education. And that's a big thing. Education. One of those Lake Lakeland Mills or Babine Forest products. I won't tell you which. Uh, like not shortly shortly after they were back up and running, there was people in there and they disabled some of the explosion protection on one of the vessels. And the persons talking to them said, why would you do this? And they said, ah, happened once in 80 years, it's not going to happen again. That was, the, that was what happened shortly after their friends had, you know, you know, bad things had happened to a lot of the people they knew. It's that general complacency, like you said, the, the toy at the top of the stairs, and they focused in on that and said that education, even after an event like this, uh, to keep people knowledgeable on the on the issues and diligent on keeping themselves safe. So they recognize that, and that's a good, a really good thing. So WorkSafe BC partnered with the WPAC, which was a, a association of all these industries, and uh, that kind of thing. It's a perfect template to apply to almost any industry that has combustible dust. And really, if all of them are doing it together, they're not. No one's at a competitive disadvantage if they invest in that safety. The people that are at a disadvantage are the outsiders that aren't 
because it's not full coverage. WPAC doesn't have all members, but anyone that's outside and not participating in the safety program is then actually at the disadvantage because seventy five percent of the industry is is doing it. Um, they're going to find you know benefits through efficiency and effectiveness and um, less crackdown from WorkSafe BC. I want to highlight so two more things on that, and and I think it's a great model. I've been trying to figure out how what can I tell people as a as a, a really large scale thing. How do we get movement on things like a national emphasis, um, not national emphasis program, but a a um, national set of regulations? And that's the that's the best model we've seen. We saw it in 1980 with um, U.S. Grain Handling Standard. OSHA partnered with the the biggest industry associations. And they partnered with the experts of combustible dust and said, how do we sit down together, come to the same room, talk through it? Um, that's what's kind of been going on at a little bit smaller scale with WorkSafe BC and the Woodpell Association of Canada. And I did want to mention, yeah, two parts of that. So one part is it's not easy. It's not without strife. And I know because I've, I've talked to many members, I've been in some of the safety meetings, I've talked to mem- many members of the Woodpell Association of Canada, and I've heard things like, when I've heard statements like when WorkSafe came after us and we thought they were all a-holes, <laughs> they said that's, but now, and the same, so the same person, that's what he said. And then says, um, but now we see the total, we're, we're totally converted. We see the power of having safety as an industry, not being competitive. And we've actually worked together now and they're identifying their own gaps. So they're doing things like identifying what research is needed in response to fires then as an industry, they can set up the right response methods. They're bringing experts from around the world to talk about things like inerting silos. And now they're kind of self-identifying their own gaps in safety and filling them in with really novel um, research and novel partnerships that didn't exist before. Um, so now they've come together, sat at the same table, and they've, they've figured out that it is all about safety. Um, they're doing some really big things. So I would look out for that. I believe they publish an annual report for all their safety initiatives, but includes combustible dust. I will see if I can dig that one up because I think it's public and we'll put it in the show notes, which will be dustsafetyscience.com slash 47. Um, so those are some of the successes. I'm going to highlight them. So WorkSafe BC partnerships with regulators and industry associations, I think it's a big one. Um, the, the Nova Scotia Dust Collector Program, which I think something similar is going on in New Brunswick now, um, where they're, they're going through and, and taking a systematic review of these systems and hopefully we'll see that in other provinces as well then we mentioned some other kind of successes you mentioned we talked about this before um, offline but you mentioned that there's now some checklists some boxes in there around combustible dust or that that's being used effectively as a startup guide do you know what i'm talking about there yeah so it's not some people have created a template with check boxes but it's really a series of questions and one of them is is this is the is the product combustible is does it contain a combustible dust? Sorry. So, um, and at the point in time, it triggers a whole bunch of. If it is, then is it protected properly? And like you said, a lot of people out there aren't. There is need either enough people doing these uh, pre-start and safety healthy reviews, or there's not enough uh, people doing uh, combustible dust hazard assessments for NFA six fifty two. So a lot of people out there may or may not be fully aware of all the issues, but when that they get to that that step. That's when they can engage other people. And if they're not personally aware of it, they can engage with people that are and then make sure that this that piece of equipment is compliant and safe. Yeah, I like it because you, you mentioned those are generally used anytime a piece of equipment's moved or a new one started up. It's kind of like the, 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 it shouldn't be this way, but it's really like the last line of defense. Okay, we're going to turn this thing on. 
check, check, check. Oh, it's whole, it has a, it has a fuel inside. Oh, just wait a second. <laughs> we should, probably should be brought it before them, but at least there is a, a final sign off. It should, I think that should be adopted across Canada, but even here still, it's, that's part of it. We still see, we go into facilities that just started like from like a new facilities and old facilities with new equipment. And somehow it's still an unprotected piece of equipment in the middle of the showroom floor. And you're like, how did this get signed off? And then there's a whole bunch of pink finger pointing, but so it's not the catch all. It's not going to be perfect, but it's way better than having nothing at all. In episode 43, we talked about OSHA citations in 2018 and a big one there. And I know I didn't, I didn't mention this to you before, but the most referenced piece of equipment in the OSHA citations in 2018, I believe was enclosureless dust collectors just in the middle of no man's land beside workers. And, and I don't know if that's something you see within Canada as well. I, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but it just kind of came to mind. I know we had discussed it before. So enclosures, dust collectors, a dust collector that is, doesn't have an enclosure. It's kind of like a big sock where the the uh, material flows through and drops out. But uh, if they're if they're located in the middle of a facility by workers, when an explosion happens, it's going to be a, a flash fire. Have you seen those in use in in different industries? Yes, um, and thankfully they're not prevalent, but they're not uncommon. You go into numerous facilities, and if it's a small mom pa wood shop. And it's in the corner and they, at the end of the, every day they empty it and it doesn't get filled whatnot. There's kind of a exceptions, depending on where you're in the, in the Canada, there, there's certain exceptions built into the codes for this. But then you get these larger facilities that are trying to avoid doing the proper thing. Uh, so they have 10 of these things and they're always filled and it's an equal, it's still the, the same amount of hazard that you still have combustible dust in the proper concentrations, all you're lacking is that ignition source. And if you do get that ignition source, then bad things happen. But typically, if you have that many in a facility, then now there's dust on the floors and various other places. It's a much more severe event when something like that happens. Uh, I wouldn't say the bane of my existence, but I, I despise enclosureless dust, dust collectors because there is no way to protect them. And they're typically only used, should be used as like, like, Home Depot, you get a piece of wood cut and they have uh, that sock attached to the uh, thing so dust doesn't go everywhere. In that kind of application, they clean it regularly. They don't let it accumulate and uh, it's a small, small area. You kind of understand that there's no really other way to do it. However, when you see a, a shop that's making 50, you know, cabinets, a, a, you know, 50 cabinet sets today and they're just trying to get around it and there's uh, really large hazards when they could have just bought a proper dust collector and protected it uh it's and they're just trying to go around that little gray area in the code it's just one of those ones where it's frustrating yeah i i had not heard of them until i i had a couple a couple people have emailed me over the last say two years on on can you properly protect an enclosures dust collector and i I didn't really know much about it until i went through these osha citations last year and uh, I can't remember offhand, but it will be in the episode, episode 43, and the report that we have there. But uh, yeah, it was the most, I believe it was the most referenced OSHA from the federal OSHA citations piece of equipment, which was kind of interesting because people were talking about it and then, and then it ended up coming through. So I'm sure there'll be more discussion on that. And I know what you're talking about. So you're like a sander, right? If you have a, a sander, it's got a bag on the back and it captures the dust. Those need to be empty. Yes. <laughs> so side. So so, and it's 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 funny, but it's um, it's not actually. So I'm doing the incident report for 2019, the first six months now. We've removed this incident because it's a it was at a home, 
Um, but there's actually a case of uh, one of these sanders being everyone went to after they're done, they finished up and went to bed and the sander caught fire because it was chock-a-block full and burned down the hose. Um, we removed it from the incident report because it's not really industry relevant, but that's a that's a very small enclosureless dust collector and they need to be emptied or else you're you're running it with full of dust. In some cases, maybe too much dust to actually have an explosion, but that's not a safe way to operate these these things. <laughs> Yeah, and it would probably be more of like a deflagration, like a, a flash fire uh, in one of those. But again, you don't, it's not how prop equipment's supposed to be used properly. And that's kind of runs right into the industry when if you're not maintaining your dust collectors, uh, you get into a big issue as well. Okay, so I think we went we went off on a kind of an equipment tangent, and this is generally how our conversations go sure. with with Jeff in person too. <laughs> uh, mostly because I, I get him going on a topic and then we, we have to come back. Um, so Within the Canadian regulatory framework, we discussed a whole bunch of things. We talked about what the regu- regulations look like. We talked about a lot of the, the successes. What are some of the other kind of challenges or groups of challenges that you're seeing that we think might have the most bang for the buck for making facilities safer? Challenges. Um, there's a lot, but we'll just focus on, like you said, that though the general attitude, we've been doing this for a blank number of years uh, is one of the biggest challenges. So I guess... Uh, complacency and ignorance. Ignorance is not knowledge, not as in just people being whatever. Uh, but before you started tracking, there was no incident tracking database in Canada. There's still no central tracking database for all fire departments are, are individual. There's no centralized database. So they're not even tracking explosions. And even if they did track explosions, it's normally the fire they track and not the cause being the explosion. There's no Tra- there's a lack of training in general. Even when people do get trained, there's turnover. And this with this falls in like the inspectors and the, the authorities having jurisdiction in general. But it, it falls into this, um, in, even insurance companies. One of our, the biggest people out there driving things forward are insurance companies because they don't want to pay the payouts after an explosion happens. So they're enforcing it. But on the same side, some of the best companies out there, there's, there's some particular insurance companies out there that are the most knowledgeable, but all of a sudden they get a new, ins- uh, what do you call that, adjuster out on site going through and uh, assessing premiums, and they're not spotting this, whereas the guy I was in a plant an hour before with was identifying the, the, these issues. So turnover, lack of training, lack of resources, so enforcement officers, there's not enough of them out there. I'm just trying to think. It, it changes by jurisdictional by the jurisdiction, it, there's differences. So when you're talking to companies that have multiple facilities in multiple areas, they're resistant. We didn't have to do this over here. Why do we have to do this over here? And even though the hazard is the same and they should be doing it there, they're just, but I guess, I know I'm kind of going all over the place, but it, it's one of those things where there's an infinite number of, of issues, but uh, as education increases, as like this education is amazing. Like your uh, program podcast like this, where people can uh, Google and find uh, the information and uh, absorb it and then figure out how to proceed is amazing. And just letting people know that uh, explosions are happening more often than most people think. And the severity of it is, is quite often extreme. So we have these issues to overcome, but it is getting better. We're light years ahead of where we were 20 years ago. Yeah, I would... Uh... Well, I wasn't I wasn't in combustible dust twenty years. I was ten years ago, but uh, not quite twenty. But from my understanding, it's 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 changed a lot and it's ebbed and flowed in one way. I I do, but I mean, I there's 
there's NFPA textbooks from 1910, 1915 that are explaining that a dust collector needs to be isolated from the inside of a, of, and showing examples of aluminum polishing operations where an uh, explosion outside is propagated into um, the facility and, and calling for things like isolation, housekeeping, and all this. So we've sort of known about it for a couple centuries now, <laughs> um, but it's since um, Imperial Sugar, since uh, chemical safety boards, heavy coverage of it since the National Emphasis Program from OSHA, there has been a big uptick. And I think we're going to see continuously improve things. And with the incident database, we're hoping to continue to drive that awareness, hoping to continue to do research projects. We're bringing in academics, universities, partnering with um, really forward-thinking industry groups, really forward-thinking companies like yourselves, like Fike, and, and continuing to propel this mission. So I I think we're headed in the right direction, but we still have a have a lot of work to do. I agree. I'm glad you brought that up, that 1910 uh, isolation incident. That's one of the deficiencies you see, even when people are applying explosion venting or some sort of protection on the dust collector or silo or vessel that contains combustible dust. They're like, oh, we've got, it's protected. And that's not protected in anywhere in Canada. You must address, must, sorry, you shall address isolation and address changes but you still need to get someone to go in there and if you're not providing isolation you need to have a qualified engineer say it's not necessary and the reasons behind it yeah i mean isolation means that an explosion will not propagate from that vessel to down or upstream <laughs> so the, the mechanism of which creating that non-propagation is different and and um, needs to be designed but that's what it that's what it means so if you have a system that doesn't stop that from happening it's not isolated <laughs> or wasn't isolated properly at least the one big explosion we've had in Ontario recently is uh, Veolia and Cernia in 2014, where one, one fatality occurred and five life-altering injuries. The dust collector was outside. The explosion happened outside and then traveled inside, and that's when the, the secondary deflagration and explosion happened and caused the loss of life and injury. And that could have been avoided with isolation. Okay, well, I mean, we covered a, a whole lot of ground this episode. We talked a lot about the Canadian regulatory framework. and. We, we really talked about what is the, the broad scope. So the national fire code is sort of the thing that's nationally across the across the board, but that's adopted provincially by different groups. And then there's a bunch of whole a bunch of stakeholders, a whole bunch of characters, if you will, involved in the different parts of, of making a facility safe. So this could be your building inspector, it could be your um, engineering tech, it could be your explosion protection expert if they're brought in, which they should be. <laughs> um you know, it's all these individuals and it's at a different level. So the the level of awareness is going to differ depending on population size, how close you are to regulators, but the, how the regulators are partnering. It's, I guess the, the only way I can think to explain is that it's very disparate. There's, there's places where there may be a high level and there's places where there's low level. That probably causes, like you said, confusion for the industries because if they have five mills throughout Canada or 25 mills throughout Canada, they're not going to understand why in, in, Manitoba, they got to do something different than they they're doing in Quebec. Or, I mean, it it it's the same hazard. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a big difficulty there. And I'm happy to finally get some light on the regulations of Canada. Like I said before, we've covered much of the world, but we haven't actually had a, a good look into Canada. So I appreciate Jeff coming on to do that. Is there any kind of any last things you want to talk about before we call it uh, quits on this episode for today? I guess just to put a pin in it, uh, highlighted some issues and the problems, and we still have a long way to go. But again, we are moving forward. With the, the education is much, much better. 
when you say combustible dusts are explosive or dusts are explosive, now people don't look at you like you're crazy. So the education is infinitely better. We're moving in the right direction, but uh, we got a long way to go. Yeah. And I would, I mean, we're trying to do what we can at dust safety signs, but I would attribute a lot of it to the work that people like yourselves are doing boots on the ground every day. I mean, you've been, you've been educating people since, uh, not quite since I, before I was alive, but <laughs> you know, not that far off either. So I appreciate the work that you guys do. I appreciate the work Fight Canada does. Another research partnerships is another thing that might be very interesting. And I was going to mention Dr. Paul Amy at Dalhousie University here actually has a had a collaborative research and development project through the through NSERC. I'm probably going to butcher their their uh, acronym, but I think it's Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. That was a an industry partnership that did a lot of experimental testing. Bike was part of the partnership. Bowski Associates and Jensen Hughes and a couple other groups all really got together on experimental testing. So that's another way that we can look to improve this moving forward is, is these wider partnerships by the people that are the experts as well. So with that, I just want to want to close out and say thank you, Jeff. And I'm hoping uh, some of these topics that we talked about, like enclosures, dust collectors, may warrant their own podcast episode in the future. So we may look to get you back on for those. <laughs> Yeah, no, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. And like I said earlier, education like this, your podcasts are a valuable resource and, uh, and much needed out there. I appreciate it. Um, we'll be talking soon. I look forward to getting you on the podcast again in the future. Cheers. Thanks. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Jeff Mycroft, Ontario Regional Sales Manager for Fight Canada. We've been talking about the Canadian regulatory framework for combustible dust. And we, we really covered, I won't go through the summary because I just did at the end of the podcast, but we cover what things look like in Canada, and it's, it's similar to the United States in some ways in that each province, similar to each state, is adopting their own set of the guidelines and engineering guidelines and rules that go about. But we have some of our own challenges as well, things like very rural areas, although you have that challenge in the United States as well. It's just, a, it's just kind of a different set of organizations and a different set of governing bodies. And a lot of the similar challenges appear that have appeared otherwhere globally. So that's really the, the goal for this year. We're with these podcasts, with these ones that are specifically focused on the global challenge of combustible dust. What does the regulatory framework look like? Where are the successes? Where are the challenges? And we're hoping to collect those up. Um, and by the end of this year, which is rapidly coming, try to get an idea of, of global coverage, what things are working and what we can we can do moving forward to increase safety across all of these industries. So as always, I want to say, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. I want to say thank you for tuning in. We have a safe and productive week ahead. I really appreciate the the work that people like Jeff are doing out there in industries every day and the the work that uh, all the listeners are putting out there as well. So if you want to talk to Jeff, um, you want to learn more about Fight Canada, they're a global company. They do manufacturing in Canada, but uh, they have they have other locations all throughout the world. We'll have his contact information and other information for Fike at the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 47.